You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. I've never been to Pittsburgh before, Brendan. Oh. Tell me tell me a little bit about all I know is I think the penguins are from there. Very surprising, actually. Um, so I got when I was in Pittsburgh, I think it was the nicest weather that they ever have there. So it's about 70 and sunny. And for some reason, uh, I just I thought that Pittsburgh was gonna be flat. I don't know why. It's not <laughs> at all. It's pretty hilly and it's it's beautiful. To be honest, it's a beautiful city. It's on multiple rivers. I think it has the most bridges out of any city in the United States. Like it is a gorgeous city. I mean, downtown was maybe a little rough in some areas, but outside of that, I was super surprised. There was uh, We were in this really nice convention center, actually the nicest convention center I've ever been in my life. And it had this terrace that you could walk around on the side. And there's the huge, like, this huge river that goes through Pittsburgh that I think connects to the Ohio River. Um, and then past that is like this mountain of just green, like luscious green and like some houses up there. Like it was a really beautiful city. I, I don't know why I thought that Pittsburgh would be like flat, kind of like a Midwest town. Which you know maybe it is still, but it it was hilly. It was it was gorgeous, and the weather was the weather was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> like I was like I, I remember being there the first day, and I was like, hmm, I could get used to this. This is pretty nice. So this being a geography based podcast uh, in every single way, is Pittsburgh? Is it the capital of Pennsylvania? I've never. I mean, I've never been to Pennsylvania before. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know if it's Pittsburgh or. Uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I don't know which right. one, but I had been to Philadelphia, I think back in high school for like some college tour. I don't really remember it, but Pittsburgh is very much, much more west of that. So I'm assuming they are quite different. I just don't remember anything about Philadelphia, but yeah, it's a, it was like, I would actually recommend it. It was really nice. I just, I don't know why I just thought it would be kind of, you know, if you've been to like Cincinnati and I thought it'd be more like that, right? Where it's kind of one of these older cities in the United States that had been developed a while ago. And, you know, maybe wasn't, it wasn't what I was expecting, to be honest. I'm not trying to dig at anybody that lives in Pittsburgh, but I was genuinely uh, pleasantly surprised because I just had never, I didn't know anything about the city going before I went into it. Yeah. So if you're wondering, uh, you know, episode 112 of Arsenal Pass. While we're talking about Pittsburgh, Brendan spent the weekend. If you missed it, there was a a 5K brawl event, and it was was there a battle hardened on the Sunday? Yeah, there was. Yes, I think so. the The battle hardened that was sealed, I believe that was a battle hardened. Dude, I get so lost nowadays when it's like battle hardened PTI brawl. It's like, is it a grassroots tournament? Is it an official one? Is it one of the five different tiers? Um, it was a sealed tournament. Um, and. Who won? It, who, it was that guy who's part of the Wolfpack now. He's a former Gwent player. He top eight at the calling. I think his name is Dave, but I always get his name mixed up with something else. <laughs> so there's a, a member of the Wolfpack. Well, that narrows down to about 100 people. So <laughs> yeah. I really, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think Dave Lynn won. Yeah, I think Dave Lynn won. So congrats to Dave yeah. on winning the Battle Harden. And there was a, it was so the, the, the classic constructed event was over two days. I got a little bit confused. I didn't see much of the coverage, but there was a, a 5K brawl event. So mm-hmm. this grassroots tournaments uh, tournament that you, you casted along with with flake and uh flake and charmer as well as sam from three floating there was a so yeah it was a 5k class constructed tournament but there was a pti for the winner um i don't know if that was a pti given by legend story or if realm games put up sorry not a pti a gold foil my bad i misspoke right it was a gold foil that was given up i don't know if it was from the publisher or from realm games but i I think it was from lss Okay, cool. And that was played over two 
days. So yeah. uh yep, Swiss rounds in the in day one and then cut to top eight. And yeah, we I think we streamed five matches of top eight. So right. one quarter and cool. all semis and finals. It's four. Nice. That's four. <laughs> Quick math. <laughs> Quick math. Uh, sounds like you had a good weekend. Well, Arsenal Pass, episode 112. Welcome, everybody. This week, we're talking about, you know, I, I mean, consistency is one thing we're talking about. Power is another thing we're talking about. And over the weekend, we saw Ultim take down a, another event in all the Ultim, Ultim finals. Of course, Ultim will living legend in just a few weeks' time when Dust or Dawn releases. So it is the, you know, it's the farewell to Ultim. We spoke a lot about that last week on the pod. But one thing that kind of keeps cropping up in a lot of the metas that we talk about, Brendan, is this idea of consistency and power and how it wins tournaments. You know, uh, the theory of, I guess, what is the power of a deck? And with Ultim, we've just seen kind of dominate into this format. I mean, Ultim's always been quite strong, right? Mm-hmm. But how it's dominated into this format really when you dig into it, it comes down to the consistency of the deck and you can point to a lot of this in terms of decks that have done well in this format so uh we're gonna we're gonna dive into that in the main topic of the pod but i don't know if you want to add anything to that before we dive into this week in flesh and blood i feel like like watching old him it almost looks better than it used to be obviously it lost winter's well and it's strictly mm-hmm. worse because of that but the list feels so refined oh. at this point that when i yeah. watch when i watch old him played it feels like he's literally playing a different game like the cards are just better in every way the game plan is so dynamic and adaptable and the value is just so much higher than any deck and the variance is so freaking low like the old him game plan makes flesh and blood look like chess to me like it's so repeatable it's the same thing every time and you just watch opponents when the old him is being piloted by a skilled player just systematically lose <laughs> they just can't do anything it's it's an incredible hero and I want to talk about what makes heroes as powerful as old him. Like what makes him so consistent? Is it is it access to larger card pools? Is it starting with you know powerful items on the board, so permanence with zero variance, things in the form of equipment, hero abilities, etc. Because I think that as new sets are printed, you know, like Dust Old On comes up, if you understand the core tenets of what makes heroes like old him be so successful, you'll be able to sort of spot the the next one before anybody else. Because it's pretty much the same. Sh- thing every time <laughs> well it, it is and it isn't like it, it is like then this is what it boils down to which we're really going to talk about in the main topic pod, which is power and consistency but that power and consistency can look quite different each time sorry i just saw brendan unscrew a jar to drink water that's something i've never thought i'd see in my life but yes power and consistency and the way to you know, harness those things basically to to build and uh, and have the right deck for a format. I'm shook. Uh, <laughs> anyway. I always throw you off. Like it's it's either my big water bottle, it's a it's a glass of water. It always throws you off. <laughs> um, shout out in the comments if you've ever seen someone drink water from a jar before. Uh, last week in Flesh and Blood, obviously you were in Pittsburgh for the brawl. What did you get up to? Did you did you play some Flesh and Blood yourself? Did you? And you know, I'm always these things are notorious for you know maybe a, a, a late night draft mm. things like that. So I didn't have any time because the first day goes a bit long because of Swiss, and then on the top eight day, I got pretty sick. <laughs> I don't want to go. I feel like it's not even appropriate to kind of go into it. It's not. It's not like hey, you just unwell. You're yeah. Unwell. It's a little. It, yeah. It's ba- but yeah. Anyway, I had like a very standard kind of thing that made me unwell, and then unfortunately, like the later in that Sunday, it 
it progressed and it, it got, it was, it sucked. It was terrible. It was freaking terrible. So I was, um, yeah, I was in agony on the, on the floor of my, of my shower for like five hours on Sunday. Um, but all better now and didn't have time to do any drafts, to be honest. There's, there's basically no time when you, when you cast these things, maybe on the final day, you can get to de- get together on a Sunday, do some cube, do some team drafts, etc. But this time I wasn't able to do it. Yeah. Well, glad that you're all better and uh, back now in your in your home, ready for well, road to nationals. So the last last week of road to nationals this week, uh, I played my last road to national personally this past week. Last class constructed. There's there's a couple of draft ones I think this coming weekend. I'm not planning to play draft ones. Uh, I draft a lot of outsides. I, I really enjoy it, but Singapore is coming up next weekend now. At this point, it's I mean I fly out in just over a week, eight days. So I want to get some some reps in, some preparation in for Singapore. Get some testing in. So going to skip some of the last road to nationals uh, as much as I'd love to draft and and focus on that. So yeah, played played a road to nationals on the weekend. Played uh, Ultima again. Played the Swiss rounds. I actually went undefeated and then scooped to a friend in, in top eight and got to go home early and go out for dinner, which is nice. like I've read so, this been nice before. Play. It's like every single yeah. time you're like, yeah, we're undefeated and I scooped this. <laughs> it's like it's every single weekend you're just not losing on the stack except for the one that you intentionally lose. Um, yeah, I. so obviously I remember my road to nationals coming up this weekend, but mm-hmm. Diablo 4 comes out. I'm yeah, pretty excited so for that there's game. There's a few people in this, in this predicament of uh, do... I've heard, you know... Uh, editor Dave, who does a lot of our gameplay videos, has said he's not going to road to nationals this weekend. He's playing. He's playing Diablo. I feel obliged to go because I had I, I literally couldn't go the first weekend. Then I was in Pittsburgh. Uh, I feel obliged to go, but I also have no idea what I'm doing at U.S. Nationals. I I, I thought I, I thought I understood what I was doing, and then I got some. I got like a word from a little birdie uh, this weekend. So that might change. So I just have no idea what my plans should be. Cause obviously if I'm, I'm not playing, then, you know, maybe I can just do one road to nationals and I can play some D4 maybe. Uh, but if not, yeah, I mean, I gotta go try to get my invites. I don't have to use a PTI. Just, um, just go hard, go early, scoop it up on Saturday and uh, you have all Sunday then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, man, that's not how it works. <laughs> I got all Saturday and all Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I wish it was that easy. Uh, winning a, a, a top four in rotationals is definitely not uh, not that easy. Um, Bing, can I? Uh, this sorry, you just reminded me of something. I apologize for the interruption, but um, LSS posted on their Twitter about the calling Singapore, and they were advertising yeah. that the winner is defending their title. <laughs> I was like, great marketing angle. You think we could use this for the national championships as well? <laughs> Well, only if they qualify. Yeah, <laughs> they're so close. I mean, they're so close. It it, it does make a great storyline because I remember because seeing even that post on Twitter got me more excited for the calling Singapore because there's skin in the game, right? There's something on the line. There's a, there's a reigning champion coming. A little bit of a tangent, but I digress. No, no. I mean, look, I'm super looking forward to it. I've heard there's there's a lot of international travelers coming to Singapore as well. You know, I assume Michael Fing will be there at this point because does it's a calling. Yeah. Uh, but I I also believe there's some other north american based players traveling to this event as well so that's this you know i missed out on pro tour baltimore i was in hindsight i i really wish i could have been there you know watching the coverage and i, f- I felt like i really missed out i want to be playing high level competitive fab and the more players who are traveling to these events <clears throat> obviously already within the SEA region like there's an amazing group of players um but then also to add international players to that it's going to be it's going to be a great event i have a feeling that this top eight in singapore you're going to see a lot of repeat names. You're going to see a lot of the best players from 
Southeast Asia in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's going to be a good event, I think. There's also Monarch Sealed on the Friday, which I'm excited about. So, yeah. Singapore is such a cool location for a calling as well. Like, it is. It's such it's a such cool, a cool place. Yeah. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm really jealous because, yeah, last, <laughs> the last place I got to go to for, well, I went to Pittsburgh, which was better than I expected, like we talked about. But the last place I went to is Baltimore, which I would say that was still better than I expected, but I had pretty low expectations. Singapore sounds freaking sick, though. So I'm really jealous <laughs> that you guys get to go there in APAC um, so far. And then, you know, maybe Japan in the near future here. It looks like it's really catching on. I've seen a lot of, a lot of Twitter posts. Huge. I saw something uh, in the week. I mean, we can jump into the news, and this isn't really news related. Not not that I had this for the news, but um, I saw that there uh, Tamahara Saito. I'd seen that he. If people know who he is, he's a infamous magic player. Can you do, the, can you do the slap for us, so people? <laughs> he's very famous for that, by the way. Uh, if you don't know who he is, yeah, he's a he's a magic player. I but I don't know if he's a hall of famer, but he's around that kind of caliber of player. Multiple sort of like. Um, GP, which is calling equivalent top eights and wins, uh, pro tour top eights, uh, things like this, and is very involved in kind of that's his life. I think you know he's a, he's a, he's owned stores and things like that. I believe he, he's got a store opening that is going to be or with other people that is flesh and blood focused. So uh, that that's very excited. That's what I'd heard. I'd seen as well multiple sort of like flesh and blood focused stores opening in Japan as well, which is you know in Japan when they they cotton onto something, it just it just goes like it's just huge and people move really fast. So uh, the game is expanding, exploding. I have a quick little story if you want to hear this about Tamaro Saito. Actually, uh, friend of the pod and uh, my testing partner Dan Mackay was playing Tamaro Saito actually at the GP. So calling equivalent event for Magic. This is like 10 years ago. And he didn't know who this guy was. Like Dan doesn't keep his finger on the pulse as Brendan knows of like, you know, players and things like this. He, he's bad with names. Uh, but he's like playing this guy and Saito does like the slap. And then Dan gets really confused. And so just does it back to him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Dan McKay thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Japan, fab, very exciting. The news, Brendan, mm. to be honest. Not much happening this week. I think in the past week since we recorded the last pod, LSS have posted like one or two things. Uh, of course, in style, you know, they did they did post, I believe, something that we were talking about afterwards. What they haven't posted though, Brendan, and this is something I want to talk to you about, Worlds. Are we, are we getting Worlds at this point, to yeah, be honest? I, you know, I just, I, I've, I've resigned at this point of like getting any sort of reasonable notice on these things. I remember I was at, I mean, a lot of people listening to this were there, in, in Baltimore. <laughs> James is on stage presenting. Everybody's excited. Worlds, DVD. I mean, come on! <laughs> it's. I thought it was going to be like on the Monday or something, but it's been. Yeah, yeah. It's been weeks. It's gonna. Yeah, it's. It's really tough to travel. So I, when I went to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. I mean, I probably booked my flights a month and a half, two months in advance, which is not a lot, but it was six hundred dollars to go to Pittsburgh, which is a two and a half hour flight. You can imagine how much it would be to go to the City of Lights, as you know. What that's where we're, apparently where we're going, <laughs> wherever that is. <laughs> I'm I'm starting to get concerned actually about about this. You know, I think Ellis has made big steps last year about hey, we're going to give more notice. We're going to try and put the calendar up front in sections. These seasonal, you know, these seasons that they've talked about, which has been a great shift. But you know, you get this kind of information and you get this kind of commitment. I would call it a commitment. I think it's been a commitment from Ellis, and then that not followed through. We're now getting to a point where we're what we're now into June. By the time this pod drops, you know. July, August, September, October, November. We're under five months from probably where Worlds is going to be, or around five months. That that starts to get quite scary, and uh, that's going to be difficult for travel and people trying to organize their lives. Uh, you know, not everyone is a able to put full time into into flesh and blood. Some of us have 
careers and jobs and need to organize lives, children, dependents, things like that. So yeah, and it's just so damn expensive. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, way more. Yeah, than travel last year. within. Yeah, within three to four months, travel is more expensive than it's ever been before because people are booking trips further out. People are looking to travel, wanting to get around. That's kind of the reality of post-COVID world. So, uh, I anyway. um, I do want a tangent because I want to I ask, do you think that they're – I don't think it's happening, but I do think in 2024, they'll probably start actually competing more for spots at these convention places with other TCGs maybe. They already compete with like general – general people being there whether it's like a, a mm. mining convention or you know, a ju- <laughs> my favorite one by the way <laughs> yeah jujitsu convention or something but with all these new card games coming out and all of them being like hey we're doing a ton of op uh, i wonder if actually it's going to be even tougher uh because i don't know i so this past weekend hayden one piece did their signups for their like regional tournaments some of them which mm-hmm. are online and apparently the queue was like ten thousand people and it sold out in minutes it's just yeah, absolutely wow. ridiculous the the appetite for organized play right now. I think that if any game is it wants to be t- taken seriously in 2024, they need to like be bigger and better when it comes to organized play. Cuz they're all they're all sort of competing in the same boat. Right? They're all going for the same player base. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely I think you just talking about conventions in general is probably something cuz I know so from from my world from my my where I, what I do for work, what I do for a job is that through COVID, um, what you'd call like, you know, these big kind of shows, these retail shows, these wholesaler shows, they really dropped off. People doing a lot of stuff online, they shrunk. Uh, you know, there's some massive ones in Vegas and Chicago, I know, in, in the fashion world for like commercial fashion. So what I work in. And those have grown again. Those are starting to get bigger and bigger. So the, the spaces are, you know, people are out back out showing they're wanting people in person. Uh, I think, yeah, trying to find space is going to be a challenge. I think that is probably what LSS are facing right now and why this this delay is happening um so you know i'm not you know i'm not saying ah boom off stage or anything but it's it's frustrating but it's i know this obviously things are out of their control as well so uh, apparently there's a rumor i don't know if it's confirmed but that's like the the lore behind why we were in a tent at worlds it's like they had a they had a spot um secured and then someone came in and just like we'll pay you some ridiculous amount of money to take this spot and they got moved yeah. to the tent <laughs> oh well Anyway, uh, elsewhere in the news, like I said, final week of Road to Nationals happening this week. Unless you are in Europe, I believe they get an extended week because of the calling Antwerp that happened. Um, Singapore is on next weekend. If you're going to be there, come and say hello, uh, especially on the Friday. If you hang around the venue on the Friday playing in the Monarch Sealed event, uh, come say hello. Come and hang out. Uh, looking forward to it. If you've got any recommendations as well for where to eat in Singapore, please send them my way. <laughs> um, we talked about Ultim Living Legend uh dust or dawn previews this is what i want to talk about in the news brendan i want us to have a little look at some of the previews so far and uh and have a chat about them we didn't do it last week we kind of ran out of time we saw something that i got a message in the week actually from uh, one mr cal mccreeth who was dropping a an early an early preview and i sent this to brendan i sent him the screenshot and all it said was can you please record brendan's live reaction to my card drop because he says bravo sucks and the and reason going to be wrong. The reason why this card is so good is because Bravo sucks. That that's why. It's a good card. It's a good card. <laughs> Bravo doesn't suck, by the way. Ultim's just really good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so let's start there. Let's talk about some of these preview cards. Starstruck. This is the latest card we've seen from this. Something that Alice has moved towards more so is these kind of like extend. So the preview season is really short and condensed, but we get these kind of like early. It's like a pre pre preview season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
pre 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 there's yeah too many pre's in there but this pre preview season where we get these kind of like once a week or you know for like two weeks we get a couple of these kind of like creators who are known for heroes dropping these cards uh, i'm still waiting for ours brendan where's our Kano? where's our wizard card that's what i want to know <laughs> uh but we, we get these you know we get these previews happen and uh kale dropped this starstruck guardian attack action majestic it's a uh, yellow it costs seven it attacks for ten I've seen that before Bravo specialization says crush. When this deals four or more damage to a hero, the only attacks they may play or activate during the next turn are attacks with base attack greater than the damage dealt this way. And it also has unity, which is this new mechanic that we've seen, but we don't know everything about so far, but it says unity. When this defends together with a card from hand, create a seismic surge token under any number of heroes controls. I mean, this card is disgusting. <laughs> I mean, off tunic is a three for 10. Um, and then it just like time walks like most heroes, right? Like you kind of just aren't able to play. Yeah. So, okay. I I think this card is not as good as everyone else is kind of making it out to be. And I'll I'll present my argument quickly because okay. First of all, so three cards for ten, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's on rate with the other guardian attacks. That that's what cost seven, though, by the way. So yeah, that's a yeah, big, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a big caveat. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's more likely four cards dominate for ten given it's bravo that works into the cost structure a lot a lot more uh probably of what of what we'd expect for bravo so you know you, you pitch you dominate you you've got one resource floating your other two cards come on star trek dominate so in that case that is where it can destroy turns right okay they have nowhere to block that out they have to just you know throw one card at it take seven and then they can't play attacks that are less than seven so that that's really damaging for a lot of these go wide aggro decks that's damaging for its uh, base attacks so that's damaging for lexi for the rangers for all of these things right for anything basic that isn't isn't guardian maybe brute to an extent so that that is true that is a great sort of four card hand that can really swing tempo that is where i think it's at its best sometimes you know it's going to be off tunic you're not going to be able to pay for it for dominate it's going to be able to be blocked uh you're going to find times where they can throw a piece of equipment defend five and still be able to come back with attacks for six or seven or they have a defense reaction so i just i do think this is good but if i compare it to something like a dominated you know crippling crush or a dominated even uh choke slam which can get through and do something similar against a lot of decks i think it's in that kind of realm i don't think it's completely busted like people have been throwing out yeah do you think it'll be a three of just uh standard in like every deck in the main deck potentially it's a lot better than righteous cleansing (laughs) yeah that's true yeah it is a lot better than righteous cleansing actually (laughs) but it's spec what is the unity Um, ability again can you reread that yeah so unity is this ability so unity says and it's we've seen it on a couple of cards so far it says when this defends together with a card from hand create a seismic surge token under any number of heroes control so it's quite an interesting mechanic. We, I mean, the way it reads is that, you know, you defend with two cards, you basically get an ability, right? And also it seems like it works well for multiplayer. Mm-hmm. But beyond that. I mean, it's decent. It's a nice I little mean, perk though. It's fine, right? It's fine. It's interesting to see this unity on on a card like this. I, we've had some cards like this maybe in the past, but it's definitely been the exception rather than example. Maybe do you think that this hints towards more of a design towards multiplayer at least you know having this is kind of a an addendum on the card right like like you talked about the defending unity it's a, it's pretty good getting a seismic search token but the big thing i think the big attraction there with unity is the multiplayer do you think we're going to move as we move forward do you think we're going to design more cards like that 
So I think you're gonna you're gonna be annoyed by what I say here, but I actually kind of I feel the opposite. Like I actually think Unity. So I think they're future proofing mechanics mm-hmm. for PVE and for mm. multiplayer and just future proofing in general. But I think Unity actually has a massive sort of uh, impact on what's going to happen in just like class constructed and and all you know current formats, one v one formats. Because like, I'll give you an example. So you have a four card hand. You have a blue, a red choke slam, a star struck, and another whatever card. You block with your Starstruck and another card from hand to block six, mm-hmm. and you get a Seismic Surge token. Now you can pitch your blue and play your, your Crush the Weak for, off one card. That's pretty off good. Off two cards. It's really good. So the Seismic Surge token, it's basically giving you potentially like a tunic of value or a point of value or about a third of a card of value when you block with two cards. Like that is that is pretty significant, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's, it's, it's really narrowed against... Um, because you have to you have to defend the same attack with it, right? So it has you have to be defended. so go tall, yeah, yeah, something like six damage to get value at it. But it, I mean, a seismic surge token off off defending with a card is busted. <laughs> you know, like you said it's like a pseudo tunic. It's really strong, attack, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like obviously, I've given best case scenario. I've given you like a really good four card hand that enables that. But like that is relevant. Like that is going to come up, and also the card by itself is still good. You know, it's a really good card. Like people are right to call this card out as really strong. I just was not maybe as high as some people on it um mm-hmm. but yeah it's good also it sucks against wizard i don't care about it yeah fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> uh anything else you want to talk about i mean there's that we've seen a shiana specialization which is really interesting if you haven't seen this it's called alluring inducement um i don't know if i really want to go into this to be honest until we see more i don't really have much to say about it i don't remember uh, I, I saw it when it came out i just don't remember what it what it said exactly and i have no access to discord because i'm recording the cameras Okay, yeah, I'll quickly read it. So, Alluring Inducement is a two-cost shapeshifter action attack, defense for two, attacks for two. It's yellow at Majestic. It's a Shiana specialization, and it says, when this attacks, the defending hero reveals their hand. You may choose an attack action card revealed this way. If you do, this becomes the chosen card, and it also has unity for an eloquence token. Mm. I, I just don't know yet. Like, you know, what is Shiana going to mean in this format? Obviously, we know currently she's only a young hero. That's the Shiana we've seen so far. Yeah, kind of a UPF hero, maybe like a PVE hero, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's not really much you can. I, this that they use that card to sort of debut Unity, right? And the Eloquence token. That's really what yeah. they take away. Less, uh, less sort of honing in on the value of this card in like a one v one scenario at this point, I think. But it's cool. I mean, I know people are excited about it. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you. Uh, last card I want to quickly talk about uh, because I just want to chat a little bit about the future of Illusionist. I guess mm-hmm. a little bit. Bologna, uh, uh, Bologna, Archangel of War is a, <laughs> sorry, Light Angel Ally that has four attack and four health and says, uh, it's majestic, it says once per turn action, uh, two resources attack, and when Bologna attacks, you may banish a card. <laughs> I don't know, Bologna? I think it's pronounced Bologna. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, here we go again. Uh, when, this hero, when this ally attacks, you may banish a card from your hero's soul. If you do, put a plus one attack counter or power counter on each angel you control and it has ward four. So what do you think about this potential of we're just going to see this new light illusionist be really focused on allies like we saw with Dromo and it be focused around ward, essentially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when this card is spoiled, I believe... I th- wasn't this card spoiled like the Pro Tour or something? I just remember asking Brian Gottlieb, who was sitting next to me when I saw this card for the first time, if if that was exact. I asked him that exact question. Yeah. Hmm, I don't know. I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. It seems like uh, maybe they're they like they like the execution of allies more than 
spectra and auras and could potentially try to take that as the direction for illusionist with Jermai being sort of successful and uh, balanced <laughs> uh, counter counter to uh, pre, you know prism i don't know it's it's cool it can be played it can be played in bolton too right mm-hmm. uh light angel like yeah i mean we don't know the the face of the card like how you get this into play like how do you get this into play we don't know about that yeah. yet i don't know how i feel about that ward though you know what the hell i like ward interesting what's an interesting mechanic i think yeah it's just uh, it's tough for kano to deal with right (laughs) (laughs) it's really tough for kano to deal with i mean it's hard uh for the little bit of war that we've had in this game it's been like oh god here we go yeah i mean i think kano's moving (laughs) they keep printing cards like this kano's gonna move towards like serious auto loss territory in some of these some of these illusions potentially yeah maybe maybe kano's done its dash until we get a uh a uh, talented Kano. You're right. I mean, LSS has shown us that they're big fans of Kano, so I, I assume that there's some power cards coming. Uh, speaking of power cards, you want to head in the command and cookout? Yeah, I mean, lastly, just quick plug. We've got a, a few deck techs up on uh, YouTube. Brody did one. We had one with Ian, Brendan, to both these. They're great. Go check them out. And if you're looking for the deck guides that accompany them, they are up on the Arsenal Pass Patreon. There's also a Patreon pod for May that by the time this pod drops is already up there. Something very interesting. I uh, just want to quickly shout this out. If you haven't seen this video that was put up by Gorganian Time on YouTube, it's got a lot of views actually. It's got a lot, quite a lot of discussion happening about looking at kind of the comparisons between Flesh and Blood and uh, fighting games and sort of archetypes. Uh, we, 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 we kind of do a Patreon pod about that. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting. I also think it's the only high quality video essay on flesh and blood that exists on YouTube. Like it feels like yes. one of those videos that you would like watch at like 2 a.m. That's like the most <laughs> philosophical RPG and it's like a 40 minute video. It feels like that, but for fab. Yeah, it's it's great. I shout out to Gorganian Tome. Uh, go check them out on YouTube. Great. Honestly, great video. Yeah, really well produced. <laughs> Come on, cookout time. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll I'll leave you to read this because this is a question that comes in from um, our our sound engineer Hoodwill who asked a question about something that I have talked about ad nauseum mm. through the history of Arsenal Pass. Yes, so Hoodwill says, "What would it take to make Unified Decree viable?" You mention it quite often when talking about cards with potential, but I can't see past the two costs being what nullifies the upside you get from banishing uh, get from banishing a playable reaction. Wouldn't it be better if I was already holding a reaction in my hand instead of a decree? Can you walk me through the thought process on how there is any opportunity for card advantage with it? Well, yeah, that's my question too. Hayden. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're not familiar with Unified Decree, because I, I guess a lot of people aren't because this card has not seen much play. This must be one of the least played Majestics, class Majestics, I would say. Um, this looks like it's from Dust Till Dawn. Like nobody's seen it before. It looks like a spoiler yeah. at this point. <laughs> So Unified Decree is a yellow two-cost warrior attack reaction. Defense three, of course. It says target weapon gains plus three attack. Target weapon, mind you. Target weapon. Not target sword, target weapon. Mm-hmm. And reprise. If the defending hero is defended with a card from hand, this chain link, look at the top card of your deck. If it's an attack reaction card, you may banish it. If you do, you may play at this combat chain. So I guess the question that Will is asking, right, is like if you're paying two for a plus three, this is worse than, say, like a, a one for three, like we see pretty standard, right, like stroke of foresight or things like that. And those also have other upsides. So that would be a, a one for three, right? Uh, even zero for three, I guess, is kind of the rate, like, you know, think nimbleism, think iron strong response, et cetera, zero for three. So you're paying two resources to do that already. And then you get this ability to banish a card from the top and play it so I guess what Will's looking at is like that would be a plus three potentially as well like say you had say that cost is zero 
you could be looking at a, a two card six, right? Yep. And it costs two, which is like on that's a that's a brutal assault, right? At a reaction speed. Or it's uh, no, it's not. It's more than two stroke of foresight. So I mean, yeah, I was just thinking about it. The best case scenario is it's good. It's not crazy. So and then the so. floor sucks balls. <laughs> Well, the floor does, but it's a yellow, it blocks three, you can pitch and set it up, things like that. But anyway, this is why I think it is actually good and can see play, is because, <laughs> because it doesn't cost you. So, you get the plus three, mm-hmm. and you get to find the reaction off top. So, you get to present a, a minimum a two card six, which is actually really hard for Warrior to do. Like, it's not something that Warrior can often do. Reactions are also really powerful, and we've seen metas go through where defense reactions are less played because of different reasons because of the decks in the format reactions continue to have this kind of this ability to play in the reaction step continues to be a really powerful thing in flesh and blood but beyond that if you're able to pay one resource for your weapon so okay so here's your hand you've got a blue in hand and you've got a unified decree two card hand you pitch your blue you come in for your sword you play unified decree you find a zero for three off the top you've got a two card nine where else are you getting two card nines and and in this game that's pretty good it's really good so this is why i think this power and that is just based on current what's currently printed right you know these zero for threes um but that's before we even talk about maybe weapons that fit into this cost structure better where maybe you have a two cost weapon you pitch a blue you pitch another blue and play this and still get the value that's weapons that maybe cost zero in the future i mean raiden is is there um so there, there's a lot of i think ways that this card could be really powerful like i just i'm giving you an example of a two card nine which i think is powerful but there's other ways for this card to be really good i just think it it needs you need well this leads into what we're going to talk about this pod you need consistency with your power so you have a card that has a potential ceiling but it doesn't have consistency because of the the fact that you have to banish a potential random card off the top now you want that card to be either unknown because you you pitch deck it or you want it to be unknown because your deck has redundancy in it built in so that you're always going to get return off this card that's above above rate and that's kind of where this card has potential Mm -hmm. yeah so to be two card nine you have to hit like art song response right because outside of that currently you're pitching another card yeah so that was interesting because i didn't really i didn't really that's pretty good i didn't calculate (laughs) the the weapon when i was doing the initial math on it Still, like you said, probably a bit narrow card pool for this to really pay off because you're going to either need Tunic for most of the reactions or you're pitching another card. Hayden, do you think this card would be broken if it said, um, you know, if you hit the attack reaction, you may play it for free? Yeah, of course. That'd be nuts. Like, just hit a red overpower and you're like, okay, here's plus six on top of this. So it's a it's a one card nine. So you're coming for 12 off your two cards. That'd be a sick deck though. I mean, because it would, it would incentivize you to play some of these more clunky attack reactions. It's probably busted. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, and maybe if there was a serious downside for missing, you know, like if there was a punishment on top of that. But yeah, currently, I think if we get more, do you think, of, I'll ask you a better question. If we get more zero for three pumps or attack reactions, does this card become more playable? Yeah, definitely. I think it's also about the kind of utility of some other cards. So like Glint is also potentially, you know, in that scenario throughout, if you have a blue and you have this, you come with your Dawnblade, you pitch and, and play this, no resources left, you Glint and you, you know, you get the go again, you get over the top. Also, you draw a card to then pitch for resource and then you get to come in for, you know, four, maybe Brave Forge Braces off another blue. Um, and, you know, that, that that's that's huge, right? Like, that's that's where you want to, to be. So, like, those kind of cards, whether it's plus three, whether it's go again, whether it's some other sort of buff, um, that's, that's yeah, that's of interest. You know what the biggest downside of this card is right now? 
Mm, it's in warrior yeah you have to play warrior which is like just <laughs> kind of a bad class i know some people will play warrior and you're gonna juice you know juice a few players but i think ultimately warriors in not a great spot right now um you know obviously some people disagree josh Lau just takes bolton everywhere does pretty well with it you know the old flukin boxer was doing pretty well in leal with <laughs> with uh with dorinthia but yeah. yeah warrior right now seems to be a little bit behind the curve to be honest yeah, I mean, this is actually a question I want to end on. First of all, this is kind of the end of uh, Unified Decree discussion. So thanks, Will, for the question. If you want to get your questions in, uh, you can drop them in the YouTube comments below. You can arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can uh, tweet at us, uh, whatever you want to do, get your questions. And we've got some room for some questions coming up over the next few weeks. Great question, by the way, Will. Uh, here's a question for you. Mm. So over the kind of, and this leads into the conversation we're about to have about consistency and power a little bit as well, as does what we just talked about. But over the course of the history of flesh and blood, we've seen different classes and heroes kind of sit at the pinnacle, right? You know, Alice have kind of tweaked a few things here and given them some tools. You know, right now, Rangers had those tools given their way to go from the laughing stock of flesh and blood to, you know, one of the best sort of classes in the game right now. We've seen that. Would you say maybe Warrior had that kind of treatment at the start? Warrior was maybe you know, kind of top top tier early on. Uh, maybe it wasn't. Yeah, it's, are we, it's a good question. Warrior's time due, I guess, is my mm. question. Well, I think there's a good question there, Was and that's, a, is where, was where actually ever actually that good or were people just really bad? Um, because mm. it's definitely a non-zero variable that people being bad at the game makes Warrior better. Uh, so I, I don't know, is Warrior due? It seems like it. I mean, Bolton, Dorinthia, it's hard. <laughs> How do you? What? What sort of? What sort of reason do you need to pick up that deck at this point? There's, there's basically none, right? When you can play something like Alexi, if you want to play aggressive, you can play Old Him if you want to just play literally every facet of Flesh and Blood because that deck does everything. Uh, Warrior does seem behind the curve, but in my opinion, so does Brute. I think Brute's put up way more performances than Warrior recently, but Brute also feels pretty behind the curve. I wonder, you know, going off your question, asking another question instead of answering it. If that is the future of flesh and blood design is to go for these underappreciated heroes, these that are not really performing in the meta and give them this sort of makeover set like we saw in Outsiders. Or like was that intentional as a way to bring Ranger up, or were we just kind of always destined to have that set, whether Ranger was performing or not? No, I I think it's intentional. Like I think Ellis just wants to cycle through the phases of the game, you know. Each hero, because of the way that heroes are designed and the way they lock to class attributes and things like that and, and um, the key sort of flavor of the hero, I think Alice's want these heroes to have different time in the sun, right? Mm-hmm. So the way to do that is to give them the tools to do so. Now, that gives some inherent power creep, right? But also, if you're doing that lock to class, the power creep lock to class, that avoids some potential issues with total game power creep, right? Like with, if you put it in generics, and this is, goes into a much deeper design philosophy discussion, but I think it's a really interesting way to do it. I think it's a really great way to do it. It gives sort of cyclical nature to classes. You know, for instance, what we saw with, let's take Chain, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Potentially really pushed, intentionally not intentionally, Shadow Rune Blade goes away. Now, does Shadow Rune Blade return at some point, maybe in a much weaker hero form so that the card pool is stronger but the hero's ability to use it is is lower right we might see that with vincent for, for instance so it might not be at the pinnacle like chain was but then say three four years down the track we cycle back again to a shadow rune blade that is powerful enough where we get some extra cards that bring vincent up for instance so i i think it's really interesting i think it's intentional i think it i think it's great for the game to be honest it makes it interesting you know ranger being there right now next you know set maybe warriors there like that that is kind of a great part of the game i think 
Yeah, I mean, you pre-answered my question, was, which was going to be, does that sort of inherently push us towards power creep? I think that if we look at the history of LSS's design in most flesh and blood sets, maybe outsiders being the particular outlier, it does seem that they've strived to make every class as balanced as possible to sort of equalize them on a level rather than maybe giving a few classes like we arguably outside did this, give them just more powerful cards, right? Above the sort of original baseline uh, baseline that they were designed the cards on. Um, I think that that would be a new sort of a new path, a, a new path or future of design. It's kind of hard to articulate this thought and I'm realizing that halfway through it. These ideas are hard to articulate, right? Like in terms of what, you know, power creep, design, what that means to the game. And we come at this game from quite, you know, I think often a very analytical perspective. You know, we want to try and impart like knowledge and talk about the competitive side of the game a lot in terms of try and leave people with takeaways, you know, things they can go and take value from the podcast that we put out each and every week. They can go away, they can level up their game to some degree, they can, you know, they can interpret something we said, they can take away a piece of that knowledge and plug it in and put it into their game and focus on something in the next week when they go to an armory, for instance. Sometimes, though, we, we have discussions like this, which, to be honest, a little bit more entertainment, a little bit more speculative, and it's harder to have takeaways from. But also, me and Brendan love talking about the game. We are, we are big fans of Flesh and Blood, and we think about this game a lot, not just from a, you know, a competitive and, and sort of you know, our tournament standpoint, but from also gameplay and what the game could look like and, and what we want to see more from of the game. And I think this idea around game design it relates to like power creep and sort of cards like unified decree are really interesting hayden i've learned so much more about flesh and blood as i've played more games flesh and blood was my first mm-hmm. tcg and as i've played more games and been able to see what they've done right and they've done wrong and obviously it's my subjective opinion i could be wrong on a lot of those things i feel like i started to understand flesh and blood design and the core tenants and what this game is trying to do so 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 much more and i don't know it is it is still that's why i enjoy talking about it so much with you because Flesh and Blood was kind of my first TCG, and the player I was two years ago when we started this podcast is just, it's nowhere near in terms of just the core understanding of the game and what, what makes it fun, what we enjoy, and sort of this this ideal of balance, because Flesh and Blood is a scalable game after you know one to two years. It's the Wild West. Uh, Flesh and Blood was designed with a few sets already completed, but after that, as we move into talents, we move to all these classes, heroes living, legending out, we have you know crazy powerful heroes that are consistent like old him. It's you know what the future holds in the next one, two, three years. It's who knows, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I look, I completely agree. I mean, to think, you know, a year and a half, a year, two years ago, uh, I was able to win big tournaments and uh, now all I can do is make top 16s and top 8s. So, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> no, I, it's I agree. Back. It's, it's coming back. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we do love talking about the game. Let's let's move on to the main topic of the pod because, you know, just talking about theoretical standpoints and uh, maybe imparting implied value as opposed to explicit value to our listeners today, we're going to continue on with that. And talk about consistency, basically kind of the way that I, me and Brendan, just from backstory, we were messaging in the week and Brendan said to me, like, should we just do a full pod on how Ultim is just clearly the best deck? It's so dominant. It's so consistent. It's so powerful. There's no reason to be playing any other deck right now. And I said, well, this is something that happens in every format, especially once we reach maturity in a format, we find that consistency reigns supreme. The way that you can harness power in a flesh and blood deck, especially when it's consistent is what gives you the best deck in the format time and time again. Let's just talk about that and let's just try and, I mean, 
obviously at the end of this, we want to give some takeaways for people, but we also just want to talk about this as a concept. I think at the end of this, we're going to kind of wrap this up with some ways to identify this and how you can look at this for future formats. But we get to this point in almost every single mature format in Flesh and Blood, sort of uh, mature meta rather, as sets come out, as ban and restricted happens. This idea that we get consistently powerful decks. And there's two separate things, right? Consistency is one thing, Brennan. Power is another thing. But time and time again, we see the best deck be both of these. Yeah, I, the evolution of Ultim has been fascinating because at this point, with the list getting so refined, I just think that it is so much better than every deck. Can it still lose to a other tier one deck like Alexi? Um, that, that's kind of it, to be honest. Maybe a <laughs> maybe a Kano. Uh, yes, it can. But I actually think that the favorability of Oldham into those decks, is it, assuming that we can pick any pilot for each, is getting like quite a bit past 50%. Like, it is systematic, right? I mean, this deck is so consistent at this point. The list feels so tuned. Like, it was only a couple, you know, a couple weeks, maybe a month ago that we were still waffling about, mm, should you play defensive? Should you play aggressive? It's like, no, you just play the best deck that does both yep. anytime, can play any game plan, just outvalues the opponent on every single axis. Like, Olden is actually one of the most oppressive decks I think I've ever witnessed in Flesh and Blood. It doesn't feel like Chain. It doesn't feel like Cheerios Briar. It, it doesn't even feel like Prism. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like that to lose to it. But if you watch Olden and you understand what's going on, it is so consuming and overwhelming and just better. Yeah, so... This, man, there's so much to unpack, and this is going to be quite difficult because I don't think we could talk. We could probably have this discussion for two hours. I think we're going to try and do this in a nice tight, like 15 to 20 minutes because we could just waffle. So we're both going to try and be as succinct as possible. So the first thing I want to hit on is something that you just said is about this idea that, you know, it's it's more oppressive than things you've seen before. It is, you know, you see people sort of like systematically like it's it's value and it's about mm -hmm. the context of value at any given turn cycle. Ultim in the current state of what it is, is about just dominant is just edging out every turn cycle across a, a mid to long game depending on the matchup and with different tools taking that now in previous iterations of decks that have power and um and consistency we haven't necessarily seen this i would say dash is that like dash control from the crucible meta is probably the closest to this it was about eking out advantage mm -hmm. setting up your board state which is different to ultimate and then just getting consistent turn cycle advantage until the game ends because you just you out damage your opponent mm -hmm. but consistency and power in other decks for instance like prism has been completely different because in prism's case it was okay you have this kind of redundancy of like all these auras that create a board state that you're eventually just overwhelm your opponent but in a very different way chain you see every card in your deck because of the nature of like the spanish mechanic and how quickly you filter through your deck and you have the consistency of go again on your hero it looks very different it's about consistency of damage and output so it's very different way to look at consistency and power yeah i think the closest deck to oldham's current iteration and current power level is icelander uh maybe pre-banned like it was doing the same thing i think icelander had a very distracting element where it had the the storm shutter boots it could play on the opponent's turn but it was effectively doing the same thing it was just outvaluing the opponent by what looks to be small quantitative values on both sides of the turn cycle and it would just convincingly wing the game after kind of death by a million cuts by just a million out values, right? As you just stack up this, you know, this this small advantage turn by turn by turn, just nothing could really, it felt like nothing could keep up with Icelander, just pre-banned, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. So for me, that's the only deck that comes close. Like these Prism decks, these chain decks, they felt oppressive at the time because they were doing things that broke the core tenets of the game. But outside of that, I just, 
they just didn't feel like old him. They didn't feel as consistent. Even Chain, which I think was one of the most consistent decks uh, ever in Flesh and Blood, is nowhere near as consistent as the current old him list. So let's, because I think we we could just, like I say, keep digressing and, and going over this. Let's hit on some of the, we made some notes because we wanted to make sure we got this across. Let's hit on some of the things that are important to power and consistency. So first of all, what is consistency, Brendan? I mean, we just talked, you talked about this a lot. Blue cards. Blue cards give you consistency because if your resources are also playable cards, that gives you consistency to be able to enable your turns. Um, repeatable game plans, like, hey, pitch a blue, swing a weapon. Yeah, weapons. You know, uh, <laughs> Honestly, weapons is another freaking bullet point weapons. there. Weapons. No, weapons. Yep. <laughs> freaking broke. Uh, yeah, and I mean, just like, so Iceland in particular is a really good example. Repeatable game plan of just mm. out value, out value, out value in-game boots, you know, plan, dash, sit up, sit up, sit up, pistol, 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 pistol. You know, these are repeatable game plans. Chain is a little bit different in that, but heads, so maybe we'll just leave that example, but yeah. Chain more of a combo deck, but we can just talk about like what produces the best decks. I mean, I think it's, uh, at this point in Flesh and Blood, I think we've gone through a paradigm shift in sort of the ideology of what makes a deck powerful. And it's less about this like hyper synergistic combo deck that's, you know, playing all of these, I don't know, all of these cards that fit to this one narrow game plan. It just executes mm-hmm. that one narrow game plan. Like now it's just like, does your card say eight instead of seven? Can you play it off tunic and play two cards instead of, instead of three cards? Like you just consistently outvalue the opponent on just raw cards. And it's not even, it's not even the exact pitch value. It is like, the what I talked about there with the tunic, it's like really important. It's like if you can every 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 third turn, right? Every time you get your tunic counter, you can do uh three or two card eight. Like it's so much better than what most other decks can do. Um, I also think like not having any bad hands. There's been very powerful decks in the past. This is like a classic Runeblade problem. You sort of make this bargain mm-hmm. with power, and you can draw these full non-attack action hands. You can play Lexi. You can draw these these poopy hands that are just so bad. Um, Ultim just doesn't have that. Ultim doesn't have that at all. And a lot of that is access to the weapon, but a lot of it- You've never drawn an Aurid hand playing Ultim then. Well, you're right. In the mirror, in the mirror, it feels it feels a bit more tight, right? And I, I think, yeah, those those hands can be super punishing. I think when playing against another Ultim player, also playing against Lexi, it's not ideal. But I don't think it's nearly as inconsistent no. as like a a Briar or even the current iterations mm-hmm. of Lexi. I think it's much more consistent. That's all right. Yep. Yep. Um yeah, I mean, I think inevitability is another thing that produces these decks. So, you know, they just dash, I used before, dash, these dash pistol decks previously and even now, even though they see less play because of their stop spot in the meta, they have inevitability. You know, they have, once they get the items down, they're just going to out-damage you. They're, they're, they can cycle back three to four blues every turn. They don't lose cards out of the deck. That's another big thing. Not losing cards out of deck as well. Um, we see that with Ultimate Hero ability, for instance. So... There's some exception, I guess you, yeah, you talked about, you know, Briar, et cetera, not, you know, having it, but even that, right, even take Cheerios Briar, right, like redundancy of cards, that's what produces this. So all these zero for four effects, all these effects that just give you go again, that was actually a deck that did smack of consistency, power and consistency. It just was maybe looked a little bit different to what we've seen from things like Ultim and Icelander where the blues are really potent. It was about the reds being redundant and not needing resources to to fuel your your game plan. Yeah, I think in addition, like a good matchup spread and not needing to quote unquote gem format, just being good against everything. Um <laughs> it sounds like that you, of course you want to play a deck that's good against everything. But it's I would argue sometimes, especially in narrow formats at high level events, you would like to take a deck that's 60, 70 pl- into what the expected meta is, but maybe have some bad matchups, maybe have some auto losses. 
But if you look at something like an old him, I just think it's like 50 to 60. It's like everything. It, 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 it just feels so well-rounded, right? You don't have this, this potential just terrible matchup looming where you, you just auto-lose or something like that. So this is where I want to tangent a little bit because I don't want people to think we're just like straight up pouring the Kool-Aid down their throat, right? Because <laughs> I do think that that point is sometimes true, but not always true. So, uh, and I want to give an example to to kind of show this. So current builds of Ultim, right? They feel really refined, really well-rounded. Of course, we've had Ultim for as long as possible now. It's about to leave the format. So we've had the longest time possible with it. I mean, I guess that's true at any point in time, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's been a long time with Ultim. It's super refined. The meta is pretty well-defined. But in saying that, there is still very good ways to attack Ultim because these current builds are really focused on value, for instance. You know, they're focused on turn cycles. Well, hey, let's put a deck in front of it that doesn't focus on turn cycles, instead focuses on big bursts of damage. And then now the Ultim has to switch gears and now has to start to be able to disrupt that plan. So for instance, I think Viscerai is one of the current sort of builds of Ultim's yeah. worst matchups uh, because, you know, especially these Royal builds, you can just set up quite a big turn. You can punch like, honestly, like 30 plus damage. And then because of the nature of that deck with Rosetta Thorn, you can still leak out and grind out the rest of the game with a couple of like four or five damage leak turns. I think that's one of the best best decks in the format for that right now. Kano, for instance, yeah, I Kano don't think is, well. yeah. So there, there's always going to be ways of, I just want to put this out there because I don't want people to think that we're saying, hey, Flesh and Blood boils down to find the most powerful, consistent thing that's just slightly above average and every single format is going to give you, you know, this kind of like, like Brendan's saying, this 50 to 60% kind of matchup thing. Because while that is going to give you a big edge and that is something that people are going to try and find consistently, there are other ways to attack what, what that looks like. You know, that forms itself in the meta these decks form what they look like but then there's still ways to attack it because of the nature of the fact that there is a lot of different strategies and ways to play the game of flesh and blood um and i just yeah i just want to make sure that's really clear because it, it is true i think i think you're right about i think you're right about kano viscera just playing an unfair game plan into a into a deck that's fundamentally fair but just mm-hmm. better fair than every other deck like it's just better than less it's, fair, a little bit less fair. Yeah, yeah yeah it's just a little bit like a little bit above the fair curve for other decks. When other decks try to play normal games of Flesh of Blood against it, it, it really shines. But if you do have a deck that just completely breaks that paradigm, something like a Kano or like a Viscerai, um, it can't be weak to that. I remember talking to a Kano player at the top eight at the Pittsburgh Brawl, and they were just, they were just like, Ultim is my best matchup. I, I can't. I literally brought this deck for Ultim um, mm-hmm. because the Ultim decks now are just have a harder time dealing with dealing with Kano than they potentially have in the past. Um, just talking about Kazit, we talked about weapons but i think it just goes to a a larger concept which is permanence in general and there's a there's a few different types of permanence there's weapons there's equipment there's your hero ability and oldham has a very good hero ability and has some incredible equipment and we've seen that consistently like powerful hero abilities starva chain uh prism maybe not having i mean it does have a power hero hero ability but it had permanence as well Permanence in the form of mm-hmm. in the form of spectra auras that would take the opponent's action points, something that you really couldn't get back with a lot of cards in the game. You're kind of just stuck to, I don't know, staying in the core tenets of the game in terms of the clearing auras and having action points. So yeah, permanence on board. I think mo- a lot of the ban- a lot of the cards we've seen banned have been those kind of cards, right? Scalata, Mask of the Pouncing Lynx, uh, Stubby Hammers, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even some of these ones that are a bit more transient, like hypothermia, right? Like has an impact on the board, which link, can linger over a turn cycle, um, for instance. So, yeah, I mean, 
this kind of idea of of permanency and the impact on flesh and blood like that is a design space they have to be really careful of and those are the things that you know we always talk about this me and brenda talked about this a lot those are the things we look to first when we look to try and break a format or uh, abuse something you know storm striders ragamuffin's hat you know uh hero ability chain hero ability first thing that pops up these are going to be things that you know if you're trying to or we're trying to give some takeaways from this podcast when it comes to the future of the game and when you're looking at what heroes you might want to play decks you want to build you know things you maybe want to find some some value and some power and maybe it's because it's not the, the thing that people are doing right now maybe it's because a new set releases whatever it might be your reasoning for it the things that i would look at always are what's what can be impacted on the board so yeah hero ability getting leverage out of a weapon that's why i love romping club so much you know the, the potential value of like two resources for five on board is like huge like not, not you know that's that's a better rate of return than any of the weapons we've seen so far anathos etc um winter's whale even like it's it's on par with those but it's but how do you get it out of it that's the next step you know you identify this ability of potential consistency or potential power sorry but then how do you make it consistent that's the that's the next thing that's the tough part yeah i, I just reflecting i wonder if in the past and up until the current time if we have looked at permanence and tried to break the game from there more than we've looked at individual cards i think that most of the time we've looked at permanence like chain was permanence um mm-hmm. i mean the only one that really breaks the paradigm for me is kano right kano was kano has a broken permanent pay three draw card <laughs> pay three draw yeah, cards and storm shiners but we did look we did look at aether wildfire and, but if you look yeah. at something like a viscerai a combo viscerai back in the day that was scalata just things that start on board that you can exploit because you can do it every single game it's right there you don't have to draw it or anything like that there's there's no variance to it um hayden mm-hmm. what what credence do you give to heroes with larger card pools do you think that that currently contributes for sure. And, and it will continue to contribute, right? Because uh, that's going to give, we talk about consistency as redundancy is a big part of what drives consistency and larger card pools potentially gives you more shots at redundancy. Like we, we've seen it time and time again. I mean, you look at Guardian, for instance, you know, hey, there's more cards that have big numbers in the bottom left-hand corner and a blue. So that just gives consistency. You know, a card like Rousey Ancients, for instance, is such a strong card in blue and it gets benefited by larger card pool, for instance, because of these abilities to to reveal to it. Um, you know, even looking at like Ranger now, benefiting from, there's so many options for the arrows that you can use to have consistent game plan. There's so many zero for fours now that you can have this like, we saw Matt Folks top the PT with this like, really low resource build. Like, the, you know, there's just different ways to extrapolate or to extract power and consistency with larger card pools is true yeah card pool asymmetry seems like one of the best like starting thesis uh theses the plural of that is for finding what is potentially the best hero in a format it it seems like that is kind of the current theme of the best decks that have existed for the past i don't know six months to a year has been the decks with the with more cards to draw from we talked about warrior being bad warrior warrior has access to not too many cards same with brute yeah, I think uh, when it comes to brute, I think feces is the correct terminology for brute. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you want a calling? You want a calling? Um, <laughs> let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in the current meta. So, what does this mean for Oldham versus Lexi in that discussion? Uh, yeah, I think that Oldham is more consistent. Like an Oldham can a- enact more game plans. It can be both defensive and aggressive. Uh, like we talked about, it's just really trying to get value. Lexi suffers from bad draws, stud draws. It can, it can have a hand that does basically nothing, which we've seen cripple Lexi's. And close games, games that exist on a razor's edge. We've seen Lexi's lose this all the time. Saw them quite a few times on stream for the Pro Tour. Um, Lexi is also forced 
sort of forced to be the player that wins the game, it feels like sometimes against some of these ultimate decks. This has to do this complicated stack while also presenting constant pressure so that it, it mitigates the damage that Oldham could be presenting back with on hit effects. It's like it's, it has to attack from multiple angles to have any chance to win the game. It has to be aggressive and be taking cards out of Oldham's hand, and it has to be stacking for the end game. Just a tough game plan to enact. And yeah, I think that Lexi also has a potentially, I mean, I'll ask you, Hayden, do you think Lexi has a larger variance spread across um, all matchups? Than uh, no, I actually, don't. I don't think it. I don't think it does. I think people think that it does, but that's because of the way that people are building their decks and looking at. Lexi has the bigger target on its back for whatever reason, because <laughs> people perceive it as like a higher seal. It does, right? Like, so it's, it's the most popular high. deck every single time, too. Yeah. I mean, so with with reason, right? Yeah. So I think that is that is why. But no, it, it actually doesn't. I think it's just more about how people are perceiving it and the way they're building their decks. Um, what, one one thing I want to add to that basically is that both of both Ultim and Lexi are the two most consistent and powerful decks in the format right now. Now Lexi has a higher ceiling; it has a higher level of power. It is slightly less consistent than Ultim, but Ultim is super consistent, right? That is kind of you know mm-hmm. that's why it's so good. But also is is a, is is powerful. Can do powerful things. Has access to powerful cards. Um, so powerful permanents, like we just talked about. So you kind of pointed out this thing of like Lexi is the one that has to win the game. And this reminds me of formats like Chain versus Bravo or Katsu, whatever. The Fatigue deck, basically. Yeah. Chain was the one who had to win the game. It reminds me of Crucible of War, which a lot of people wouldn't have played that meta, but it was like Dash just fatigued. Dash, like Control decks just fatigued people. And it was like Katsu had to win the game and it had tools to do it. All of these decks have the tools to win this game. Often the reactive deck just gets to do one thing. And as long as they do it well, they're in a really good position, right? The opponent, they make, can maybe make a couple of mistakes. They, their sequencing is a lot easier. They're, all the pressure is on the other player, the proactive player to sequence correctly, to have a really strong game plan to, you know, and also not get done in by variance to a degree. And that is why I think time and time again, we see these decks that have the consistency and power, but are more consistent in a reactive manner are the the go-to decks, the decks that are seen as the most powerful for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think as someone who really loves or thrives on understanding how proactive decks can attack reactive decks, I think there's always a way to do it. I just think that people are slow to respond yes. because- People find, you know, hey, his ultimate fatigues Lexi in this way, so this is the way it's done. I think people are really slow to respond to find the ways that, for instance, Lexi can beat that. Uh, I'm not saying that 100% is and Lexi should be the favorite deck every time, but I think that there are definitely ways there. You know, we just talked about, you talked about this kind of gem format and the spread of like 50 to 60% matchups. I look at the, I played a couple of games of Viscera into Ultim. I was like, this is the way Viscera can beat Ultim consistently, and this is what it looks like. But are people out there doing that for the proactive more than the reactive and my takeaway is that people are sitting on the fence side of reactive more than proactive and when they find a powerful thing from the proactive side they tend to stick with it because they don't want to mess with the formula and reduce their consistency aka what's happening with Lexi right now people are hesitant to change the list very much they look very you know yes there's cards different every time but they're like 10 cards different really the only list we've seen massively different over the past three or four events since sort of pre-proto Baltimore was like Matt Folk's list like that was the only kind of list that had some difference to it. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's and my that's my my two cents. Just to extrapolate on too, the re- I think the reason why chain was the exception to that rule, why that proactive deck, what you really wanted to be on the practice of the matchup, was because people were so wrong 
about chains chains matchup spread. Yeah, they were they were really wrong about chains matchup spread into fatigue. They thought that it was maybe um they well they probably thought it was a 60-40 favoring them or 50-50 at least, but it wasn't. It was like a 90 to 95. Like it was really bad. So that that's why it was like you can you can make chain win the game, but he'll just do it every time because it's a combo deck. And yeah, I mean that was the that was the exception to the rule, but I think it's rooted in people just being fundamentally wrong about uh, sort of about the matchup. Anyway, and let's talk about what this means for the future of Fab. Um, for get, being ahead of the car, the curve and spotting the broken cards. Uh, I think we talked about the core tenets, right? Permanence, card pool, um, consistent game plan. I think those are kind of the, the few things that you really want to look Redundancy. at first. Redundancy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And with new heroes coming out in Dust Dawn, I think the first thing you should be doing is look at the hero abilities, right? Especially, yeah. especially if we have a Shadow Rune Blade, because you know they could they could yeah. really f that one up. Um, Hayden, what else for the future? Like any, you think that these type of decks will continue in dominance uh, as Ultim uh, rotates out? Yeah, I, I do. I, and whether it's because, like, from a purely objective standpoint, it is the correct best thing. I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think. It's easier to identify. Consistency is easier to learn and fundamentally execute on. Um, like I, I don't even think that necessarily Ultim is the best deck in this format in a a really sort of open world where information is perfect. I don't think Ultim is is the best deck, but that's not the world we live in, right? So I do think Ultim is the best deck, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it will continue for those reasons because it, it is hard to identify. It is hard to find consistency and power in these more proactive plans. Sometimes they have to look different. You, your game might look... A repeatable game plan is one of the core tenets we talked about. And sometimes consistency and power might not mean a repeatable game plan. And that is really difficult for people to firstly identify, understand, learn, and execute on. So, um, yeah, I, I think it will continue. Mm-hmm. Yep. Old MLLs, any decks that you see as sort of replacing Ultim as the whatever you would define the current spot that Ultim fills. This repeatable game plan, um, sort of replacement level cards, etc. Are there any decks that may, that are currently in the meta that you think will take that slot? Well, I think Lixie's already there. I think Lixie is in a similar a similar vein when we talk about power and consistency. Um, I think I think Dash is there. You know, there's a lot of Dash is like a few cards short of that kind of redundancy factor, though. I think, especially when it comes to the the sort of boost mechanic. Uh, but from you know that kind of item side, it's kind of already there. I think. Uh, I mean, I know you've got on the list. You've got Dro and Le- and Azuri. I'm. I don't think the kind of repeatability is there from those heroes in the same way. Um, because I don't think the homogeneity of dragons is actually... I think they're quite vastly different, what they look like and what they do and how they impact the game spread. I think Bravo is a, you know is another sort of consistent sort of... It's got some of these fundamentals we talked about. Um, but then other than that, I mean, some heroes are really sort of on the on the cusp, potentially, you know, uh, Runeblades, for instance, Ninjas. It's it's close. wonder, yeah, kind of a tangent, but I wonder if we could see Katsu mid-range or Katsu control actually come back into the meta now. As Ultim goes out, because flick, I mean, flick flack. Yeah, we talk about looking at permanence, but <laughs> looking at a cycle of cards, that card is definitely far, far above rate. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, anything. Asking momentum is a powerful permanent. Yeah, it is. It really is. It really is. That, but anyway, any other things you want to touch upon before we close out? No, I mean, like I say, a lot of the time when me and Brendan approach podcasts, just you know, for everyone out there listening, we really try and have some sort of main topic of the pod that we can impart and take away. I think as we've grown now, 112 episodes where you know we're more than two years into this, we sort of have deviated to that 
to some degree in some pods like this where we want to talk a little bit more philosophically and um, present some arguments of maybe ways to look at the game. But I still think there's some takeaways from this, especially when it comes to how to look at decks for the future, how to identify what power is, and just this idea that consistency is one of the most important things in flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to this on podcast platforms, there's a video version on YouTube at youtube.com slash Arsenal Pass. Hayden and I are both on Twitter at BrendanAPG and at Fian underscore Dale. And of course, like we mentioned at the top of the pod, check out the Patreon if you're interested in the deck techs and deck guys that go along with those videos up on the YouTube channel. We have both a Lexi deck tech done by Slash and Bud Prodigy, Brody Spurlock, as well as a Jeremiah deck tech done by Ian TCG, who has one of the best guides we've ever, we've ever had on our Patreon. Um, but yeah, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.